Well, good morning, Highlands. How are you guys doing? I see you gave me a better response than Mike. It's encouraging. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you guys this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 13. We're charging ahead through the Gospel of Matthew, running into some agricultural stories, some parables here, that hopefully we can do a good job by God's grace of transporting them into our day and age and see the truths that the Lord has for us. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our passage in total. This is Matthew 13, 24 through 43. Matthew 13, 24 through 43, and then I'll pray. This is the word of the Lord. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he, that is the master, said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Let the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. He told them yet another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you, Father, for your many blessings that you give us, your word and the gathering of the church body, fellowship together. Father, we praise your name that you continue to care for us in merciful and yet just ways. We pray, Father, today as we look to your word that you would humble us, Father, that we would choose to 
respect your word, Father, to respond in faith to your word, the truth about who you are and who we are. We ask, Father, today that you would reveal your mercy to us and your justice. And Father, that that would indeed reflect in us how we live and, Father, how we worship you. We ask, Lord, that you, again, would humble us by the power of your Spirit, help us to respond in faith to the truth that you present to us, and we pray this in the glorious name of Christ. Amen. Well, it has been said that you should never, ever, ever, under no circumstance, ever meet your hero. And I was trying to think of a story when I met one of my heroes, but I can't really think of any, other than my brother Steve, who I met a lot Wow, right, that was unplanned, but uh, nonetheless, right, there's, there's this adage, right, you should never, ever meet your heroes, and people are taking that more literally now than ever before. In fact, people have stopped going to book signings. They've stopped meeting the mascots at Disneyland with their favorite superhero. People have sort of banked on their imagination of what their hero, the way that they want them to be, instead of actually going and meeting that famous actor, that famous author, that famous mascot, green person, whatever it might be. I think this reveals a lot about how we operate in things that we hope for, things that we expect, things that we want. In the same way, people more now than ever are choosing to not meet their heroes, I think in a lot of sense, we tend, as just human beings in general, but I think it permeates into the church, into the Christian life, we choose not to know the truth. And there's a lot of reasons here, a lot of reasons that reflect what I've already been talking about, about not meeting your heroes, right? We may be disappointed in knowing the truth. Uh, you can Google this. There's tons of hysterical stories about people going and meeting their favorite actor who always plays all these good characters, and they meet him, and they, they don't want to take a picture, they don't want to sign an autograph, and they pretty much stiff-arm him in the face and push him to the ground and then walk over them, right? And in that moment, that person, usually it's a six-year-old girl, usually that six-year-old girl is so completely disappointed that their imagined hero, the one that they see on the screen, is actually in reality a terrible, selfish person. I wonder in our hearts this morning that we tend to have an imagination about who the king is and who his kingdom is. And if we'd be disappointed, if that's our big fear, right, that we would all of a sudden learn the truth about who God is and his kingdom and what that means for us, and we'd be disappointed. And then the other side of the coin is that we might just fear the change that that would take or the cost. Uh, if we were to find out, if we were to figure out, if somebody were to present to us the actual truth of who Jesus is as king and what that means for his kingdom that we've been reading in these parables about is brought to earth through Jesus, then there has to be a cost. There has to be a change. I think in those moments, we do count the cost. We do consider the change. And it's in those moments that we would choose to give up on the truth because we love the imagined cost. We love the preferred change. I don't need to give this up because Jesus doesn't ask me to do that because that's what I've chosen my Jesus to say to me. These are dangerous things. On the other hand, though, we can be extremely thankful because Jesus, as the king over all things, and we'll see this in a moment, 
and his kingdom are not a mystery to us. They are sometimes shrouded in these agricultural parables that leave us scratching our heads, but we can praise God, especially today, as Jesus just fully explains what his parable means. And it does half my job for me. This is great, right? But yet, the tension still rests in our hearts. Uh, There's still a choice to be made. And I think especially after today, the choice is to continue on pursuing Jesus and the truth of who he is and what that means for us today. The truth about who Christ is and his kingdom brought to earth, brought to us, not just this ancient period of time, these ancient people, but us here today in Vernon, New Jersey, it revolutionizes us. It revolutionizes us. And not just in action, but in our thoughts and in what we desire and what we love. The truth of Christ permeates, it ought to permeate, every ounce of our lives. And we can be thankful that Jesus is powerful to do that on our behalf. Praise God. And this is not something we should be disappointed in, but this is something we should praise Jesus because of If you guys are taking notes, I'm going to give you the big idea right off the bat, and that is that Jesus is a merciful and just king. We love that mercy part, but the just part, that's a challenge to us. So let's look at what we have here in God's word. Again, this is the word of God. We're going to be looking at three parables all together. And just a way of reminder, I know Mike went over this a little bit yesterday, not yesterday, but last Sunday. But a parable is just a practical story, usually with a comparison in it. And the whole point, the whole point of it is to reveal spiritual truth to the audience, to us. Okay, so here we go. Here's the parable. We put, or sorry, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So there you go. There's the comparison. So he's going to tell us a story that's going to compare the kingdom of heaven to something here on earth. To a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore their grain, then the weeds appeared also. We start to get the image here of what the story is, right? There's this good master of this good land, and he plants this good seed, and he expects this good crop. But when his men are sleeping, the enemy comes, and he plants weeds. He tries to terrorize, demolish, right? Take away what this good master with his good field and his good seed is trying to to accomplish, which is a good harvest. And it becomes evident to everyone that when the plants grow up to the point where they can produce their grain, bear their fruit, all of a sudden they realize there's a ton of weeds in here. So what do they do? The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, that's the master, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? The master replied to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him in response, then do you want us to go gather him? I I think this is what we would all kind of do if we were all masters of fields or servants to a master of a field. We want to get the bad grain out. We want to get the bad, the weeds out of the good field, protect the harvest. Yet the master has a weird response. He says, no. 
Do not do that. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Instead, let them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will then tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat and put it into my barn. Here we see Jesus' parable of the weeds. Now we're going to skip ahead. We're going to pass over this middle chunk here, and we're going to get over to verse 36, and we're going to see what Jesus' explanation of this parable is. Verse 36 says this, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Same as us right now. Please explain this to me. Verse 37, He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So as we start to put together this parable, we start plugging in, right, where our gaps in our information are. We start plugging in what Jesus tells us each one of these things means. So who is the one who sows this good seed? It's the son of man. Jesus is referring to himself here. The field then, this is verse 38. So Jesus goes where? He goes to the field, which is the world. So the Son of Man comes from heaven to the world. That is his field. And we see here, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. What does he do? He comes to the world to plant sons of righteousness, sons of the kingdom. Now, this isn't foreign to us. Last week, you guys went over the parable of the sower, and we learned what that seed is, that is the truth of the gospel, and that Jesus is the broadcaster of that seed. And so here, we're kind of seeing what, what happens by Jesus' plan, what happens when the gospel goes out. Sons of the kingdom grow. This is amazing truth and reality of the kingdom that Jesus is the king of is that people are born into by his grace and his message of the gospel an eternal, perfect kingdom that he is the king over, sons of the kingdom. But that's not all that's growing in here. We also read of the rest of verse 38 here, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who has sowed them is the devil. The sons of righteousness, the sons of the kingdom aren't alone in this field of a world. There's also another planter, and that planter is the devil, Satan, and he has taken this opportunity, this time, this age, to plant the opposite of righteousness, to plant the opposite of the kingdom of God. He has taken the time to deceive and to blind in order to plant weeds, sons of disobedience, evil ones. Satan's goal isn't just to have an opposite agricultural crop than God. No, his His goal, his plan is to deceive God's creation into worshiping him or really anything else other than God. Really, in a sense, to steal the prizes of God's good kingdom away from God. Glory thieving. So he plants these evil ones. Then we read, at the end of this age, the harvest comes. This is the rest of verse 39. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will be the end of the age. Here we go, verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers. 
Thankfully, God's kingdom isn't thwarted. His plan isn't thwarted. His reign over this field of a world isn't turned upside down. His plan continues. There's a harvest coming. There's a day of judgment coming. And in this day of judgment, all will be shown. The righteous seed will be proven righteous. The unrighteous seed will be proven unrighteous. And then God judges Son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. This is a reference to Satan himself, but then those who have chosen to follow Satan. Verse 42, what does God do with these? He throws them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is hell. This is pure separation from God. In this life, the the disobedient, the unrighteous will spend an eternity apart from the God that they refused here and now. But, verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This parable, this practical story about this good master sowing good seed in his field and waiting for the harvest even when there was an evil one planting unrighteous seeds throughout the field, it proves to us two things about God and his kingdom. The first is this, that God, the master of the entire world, is merciful. God, the master of the entire world, is merciful. We see this in two ways. He sends his son to sow the seeds of the gospel. He sends his sons to a fallen world. He sends his son to a world full of his enemies, mercifully giving to us what we do not deserve. The truth of who he is, the truth of his kingdom, the truth that you're not eternally separated from him as a good God, being here in this terrible world of brokenness and selfishness, but there's restoration to be had, right? There's restoration to that good king and that good kingdom. So not only does he send his own son to sow that message, but he also patiently waits. His mercy is seen in his patience as he waits for this time of the harvest. He waits for this end of the age. He didn't immediately snap at the first sin and just wipe out all of his creation and say, better luck next time, or that was a fun experiment, but we're done here. No, he waits patiently. His mercy is on display as he bears, the Bible says, long suffering with us. His mercy is described here. He patiently waits to judge the world, and then finally in that moment, he's going to do an amazingly merciful thing. He's going to remove sin and unrighteousness from his creation. He's going to recreate all of his creation back to the way it was meant to be, back to this perfectness, and include us in it. But God, the master of the world, isn't just merciful, but God, the master of the world, is also just. He's just. There will be a time when he gathers to the fire to judge the unrighteous. There will be a time when he says, all right, this is my plan. My plan is to judge. My plan is to reap. My my plan is to separate the unrighteous from the righteous. This is his justice. God has this unending desire for truth, and goodness, and righteousness, and the quality of him that brings that out, not only in our lives, but in all of history, is his justice. 
It's not that he just desires justice like our world desires justice. We're willing to hurt anyone or to counter-argument anything, but his justice is actually the good and right pursuit of what is good and right, thoroughly, all throughout each one of our hearts, all throughout this broken world. God is just. And so he takes the unrighteous and he casts them out of his presence forever. Puts them in the fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's part of his good justice. But he will also gather together and judge the righteous. He'll gather together and judge the righteous. And for that, he will bring them into the storehouse, his storehouse, his barn forever. And I love verse 43 here. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. I can't help but think of Moses here when he spent that mountaintop experience with God and he came back down and what was, what was up with his face? It's shown, right? Yeah, his, his face was like the sun. He actually had to wear like a piece of canvas over his face so he didn't blind anybody or upset anybody with how bright his face was. Just imagine that experience, but for all eternity. We will be glorious as Moses was glorious because we'll have a perfect relationship in perfect heaven with our perfect king and his glory will become our glory forever. That's the gift. That's God's justice for the righteous. See here that God is the merciful and just king over all things, over this entire world, over us. His kingdom comes to us in redemption and that means that his redemption is both merciful and just as well, and that also means that Jesus is the one who mediates that, right? God the Father is in heaven. He is the Lord of heaven. He is the merciful and just creator of all things, and yet that mercy and that justice comes to us through Christ. The master of the field sends his son, not just to plant, but to reap. The master of this world mercifully sends his son to us, to plant the seeds of the gospel. But there will come a time when he will send his son to judge between the unrighteous and the righteous. Jesus is a merciful and just king. There needs to be a reaction from us to this. We need to respond in faith to the truth about who God is, not only his mercy, but also his justness. Like any good Baptist, I have three points here. So the first is this. Receive Jesus as your merciful and just king. Receive Jesus as your merciful and just king. Jesus did come to a people that believed they were already part of the good kingdom. We've been seeing that all throughout Matthew. Everybody, everybody is asking Jesus about the kingdom because in their hearts they want to know if they're in or they're out. I think what they're doing is they're wrestling with their own doubt. The truth of who Jesus is, is doing combat with the truth of who they think they are. And when they look upon Jesus, when they know him more, the question in their heart becomes clearer and clearer, am I really part of the kingdom? Jesus here is telling this parable to a whole bunch of people that already think they're in because of their bloodline. And because they're an Israelite, they're already part of God's eternal family. We can think about a whole bunch of things that we would take there. We would say to ourselves or to somebody close to us, I am in God's kingdom because I go to church, because I give this amount, because I open up my property for this event, because my children behave well or don't behave well. I don't know, right? 
There's so many things that we would sort of prop up to God and say, I'm part of your kingdom because of what I have done. Yet Jesus comes as a merciful and just God to say, no, it's not any of that. It's me. I'm the merciful and just God. The word here for weed is darnel. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. It's darnel, darnel, something like that. But darnel is this weed that grows and looks exactly like wheat until it bears fruit. And so you just kind of get this glimpse of this picture where there might even be people that would, that would grow up as what would appear to be a righteous person. They would do all the right things. They would say all the right things. They would go to all the right events. They would do all of it well. But when the fruit is finally born, when the evidence is finally there, the truth comes out. And really the whole entire time they've been pursuing the evil one. They've given their lives to unrighteousness instead of righteousness. We have to ask ourselves this morning, is that me? Is there something that I'm banking on for salvation that isn't Christ? That is something else. Even if it's something that I have made, something that I have imagined. Is that me? The two encouragements here to repent and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior is that God is merciful. This is not something that is impossible for us to understand. Jesus is not an impossible God. He is loving. He is merciful. And he came to show that mercy in his death and resurrection on our behalf. If today you have figured out that you are a Darnell, you are somebody who is posing as a Christian, but you know deep down in your heart that there is something that has kept you from outside the kingdom, and you have tried to solve that on your own, it is time to repent of that. It is time to trust Jesus. The second encouragement here, and it doesn't sound like encouragement, yet in the full scope of God's word and coupled with his mercy, this is an encouragement that God is just. There might be that shred of us that believe that even if I turn to Jesus, I've still done this, that, or the other thing that would actually prevent me from God's mercy and grace. God, being a just God, will collect to himself the wheat of the field, the goodness of his harvest, first in Jesus and in those who repent of their sin and believe in him as their good king. God's justice warns of this day of judgment, but it also guarantees us the salvation that we know our souls yearn for to be found in Christ, to be part of his eternal kingdom. Praise God. The second point is this. Those of us who have believed, we spread the message of a merciful and just king. This is daunting for us because our world loves these two words. They love the word mercy and they love the word just, but they hate it when it comes from the Bible. They hate it when it comes from Jesus. They hate it when it comes from God, and they do not like it when we say that God is the king of all things and his mercy and justice are seen only in one way, and that's through Jesus. On the other side of the coin, though, Jesus sends us into the world as he came into the world full of people who think that they've got it all together, full of people who think that mercy and justice are found somewhere else other than Jesus. So it's up to the believers to sow the message of the gospel. It's up to the believers to live that righteous life out, that life of the king around those who we come in contact with, those that we work with, those that we say are our family, whether it's really blood family or it's just a really close friend, whatever it might be, right? Those that we love. 
We sow the gospel message around them. We tell them how God is the righteous creator. He is Lord. He is authoritative over all things. He does deserve the glory that we so often give to other things. And we are rebellious for it. And we also tell them about the truth. Jesus is the merciful and just king. But we also respond in mercy, right? We just don't spread the gospel, but we bear with people. We long suffer as God long suffers with us. We do what it takes. We spend the time. We spend the energy. We spend the money in order that people would not just know intellectually the truth of the gospel, but that we would see them and help them and lead them and guide them into a heartfelt trust in Jesus. Mercy is most definitely needed in that because people strike out against Jesus, they strike out against us as followers of Jesus. Maybe you're in a situation today, right, where you can think of somebody right off the top of your head that I have been with this person for so long, and yet they continually reject Jesus, and I feel that personally. I feel their rejection of Christ and the message of the gospel. I feel that personally. This passage encourages us, as Jesus remains merciful with us, we look at them and we say, I will bear in mercy with you. I will bear in mercy with you. Third and final point here, live as the merciful and just king of heaven has prescribed. If Jesus really is our merciful and just king, then we need to live as he has told us to live. In chapter 13, 23, you guys can flip there. Says this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and indeed he bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The reception of Jesus' righteousness isn't locked inside of our heart for eternal salvation. It's ought to be produced into the fruit of the kingdom, into the fruit of the Spirit. This means that, most specifically, we mercifully bear with others in patience as they wrong us. But then also, as far as justice prompts us to, we speak the truth in love. And I just wonder, again, there's a specific point of application here. I know we love, as a culture and as people, we love being just with our words. We love being on the right side of an argument. We love pointing out the wrong of another argument or even in another person's life, the discrepancies, right? Yet, we need to do that in love. The, The truth often is just, and we love that part of it, but we need to describe, we need to bring that to others with love. Justice and love in God's kingdom are not separated. They are the same. They're coupled around truth. In three ways, we respond to Jesus as our merciful and just king. We accept him with humility. We promote his message with urgency, and we live as he has prescribed. But our response to Jesus, our merciful and just king, has a lot to do with our perception of who Jesus is as our king. So look with me at verse 31 here as we go tackle his other two parables. I'll read them together, then we'll talk about them individually. He says this in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. I didn't believe this when I first read this, like the smallest seed, but I actually Googled it. They're tiny. They're puny. And they actually look like mustard colored. It's weird, right? It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Something so small grows up into something so large, a tree. 
so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What are these two micro parables teaching us here about God and his kingdom? The first one, the one about the mustard seed, the, the comparison here is from small to humongous, from what seems to be weak to something that is strong enough to hold the birds, hold nature, right? In this, we read that the kingdom, though seemingly small, is powerful. It grows up into something more grand than what it appears to be first and foremost. I think we see this just in the birth of Jesus. Right? God's kingdom, his king coming to earth as a little baby born in a major around smelly goats and ugly animals, right? It just seems so insignificant. How could the absolute triumphant kingdom come out of this child born in the wrong spot? And yet, even by this point, people are starting to realize that the kingdom is much greater than what it first appeared to be. The second, this uh, parable about the leaven in a humongous lump of bread, right, 150 pounds of dough, and they put this little guy in there, a little leaven, but yet the leaven eventually works its way through the whole wad of dough. What is this telling you? It's telling us that God's kingdom, though seemingly small and insignificant, will one day permeate everything. The same way just a little bit of leaven works its way through the whole entire wad of dough, God's kingdom will one day be over all things, purely, wholly, perfectly. Jesus is the merciful and just king, and his kingdom, though seemingly small and insignificant, is powerful and advancing. And that's great news. We've got to think about that in the context, though. We've got to think about that in the storyline here as Jesus sits in a boat and says this to those sitting on the shore. Let's just put ourselves in their place here for a moment. The Israelites, all the way from the Old Testament, were expecting their king, right? They're expecting their king to come and to, in fact, gather many to him. They were expecting him to gather all the Israelites, all the Jewish people to him and drastically change the world. Jesus comes, claims to be the Messiah. He ends up being rejected by more people than accept him. And it seems that many times throughout, the people that actually accept him don't actually accept him. They actually just kind of be with him because he is seemingly powerful. He's rejected by many, and instead of congregating people to himself and kind of working against another common enemy that all those people have, really more up until this point in Matthew, it seems that he's caused more infighting than outfighting, right? And now, just as people start to gather to hear Jesus talk about the kingdom, this is something the disciples were ready for, this is something that the Israelites were waiting for, finally the Messiah, so-called Messiah, will start teaching us about the kingdom. He starts off with parables about sowing seeds, weeds, mustard, and yeast. And you just imagine what everybody's face is like. Finally, there's enough people here where we actually have to send this Messiah off into a boat into the water. And he turns around and he starts teaching. And he starts teaching about weird stuff. Like, why would he do that? Right? How is this Messiah going to convey the truth about who he is and who the kingdom is through these par parables? Well, Jesus is God's 
merciful and just king, right? The crowd, the Pharisees, and even his own disciples were expecting something else. They were looking for something else. Throughout the book of Matthew and throughout the book of, or the other Gospels, we see some of these things that they were expecting. Some of the crowd followed Jesus because they wanted a good show. They wanted the miracles. They wanted their stomachs filled, right? The Pharisees followed Jesus because, well, in the beginning, they, if he really was the Messiah, they wanted to get him into their plan so that they can go overthrow the government, the Roman government. But by the end of it, they were following him around because they were just waiting for a time to murder him. Because they didn't meet their expectations, the Pharisees' expectations, plan B kicked in, and it's time to murder this guy. And then finally, even his own disciples argued amongst themselves about who was the most significant, who was going to get the right seat in the, th- uh, the throne next to Jesus in heaven. They wanted the significance, they wanted the reputation, they wanted the, pro- the prominence out of the king. Each and every one of these guys was looking for something else than who Jesus was. It reveals a lot about our hearts. God and his kingdom, full of this unstoppable glory, this unstoppable progress, it affects both us and the world, and yet we simply desire a different God, a different kingdom, and we want to give a different response. We might just simply desire that. We desire a different God, a different kingdom, and our own engagement to look our ways. We desire political change. We desire financial security, right? health, healing. We desire family change. Make my kids look better than what they actually look like and what they do. Right? Or we just simply want guarantees of things that this world lacks. Peace, joy, love. I'd even say mercy and justice. We look to Jesus for all these things, yet we expect Jesus to share our focus. Be just here. Be just with this person. Be merciful with me. But these guys, you can forget about them. Right? Heal me. Make my finances better. Right? Focus on what I focus on, which is usually myself. Change what we want. Change. The government is like this, and I want it like this. Jesus, make this happen now. Okay, thanks. Right? Again, my family looks like this, but I want my family to look like this. Jesus, make that change. Right? My car makes this terrible sound, and I don't want it to. Make that change. Right? There's so many things that we focus on that we want changed, and we expect Jesus to do it. And then also on our schedule. We expect Jesus to do it yesterday. And yet, Jesus' long-suffering, his merciful and just plan is taking time, evidently, especially for our cars. But... Jesus' ministry is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Look at verse 34 with me. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouths in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Here, I think what Matthew is doing is he's saying that this, this Messiah that was prophesied to you, this just and merciful king, this one who is powerful, yet at the moment that you hear these parables, you think he's insignificant. He is the never-changing, always glorious God of the entire world who is merciful and just no matter what. And kind of like two points make a straight line, 
for us today, we can say if God was, back in the Old Testament, merciful and just, and Matthew is saying he's merciful and just during these parables, then for us today, he is merciful and just for us. We just don't rely on that, but we expect that. We expect Jesus to be merciful and just, and we live that way. Ask yourselves this question this morning. What kind of Savior do you expect in Jesus? What focus do you expect him to have? What, what do you want him to narrow down on in your life? What is it that you want him to change? And how quickly do you want him to do it? Oftentimes, we set up the king that we want to be the king of the kingdom that we want so that we can live the way that we want justified. And yet it's not us bringing Jesus down into our kingdom. It's us that are looking to Jesus for hope that he, through his grace, through his gospel, can live in his kingdom. What kind of savior did you expect? What kind of kingdom did you expect? What kind of change did you expect? The challenge here is to map our lives, our desires, our thoughts, our actions onto Jesus, not the other way around. We don't map Jesus and his kingdom Unto us. Thankfully, Jesus is merciful and just, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives us the power to be humble, the power to accept His kingship, His kingdom, to accept Him as our Lord and Savior. We must not build or protect these fantasies about who Jesus is and His kingdom, right? We are unable. I should say we're very able to make up these fantasies. We're very able to make up these imaginations. But we're actually unable to produce any of that stuff that we actually want out of our made-up kingdoms. Right? That's why sin and selfishness is always defeating. We always feel empty after we do that. Because we've come to the, we've come to the truth. Right? It's unsatisfying. Yet Jesus is able. Through his redemptive kingdom, he is able to bring us what we need from him. Right? mercifully and just these self-centered imaginations by god's grace are renovated they are changed by the king do you know that your sinful desires are actually good desires twisted and broken by sin desires for intimacy desires for security desires for happiness those things are not bad sometimes we pray lord take this desire away from me because i always use it for evil our prayers should look like Lord, I have this desire for happiness and security. I have this desire to be uh, financially successful. Help me to find that in you. Help me to map my desires onto you as my king. Help me to seek what it is that I want in this life, not from myself, not from others, not from the machines and things that this world has produced, but from you, from your kingdom. Help me, Lord. Our self-centered imaginations are renovated by knowing the king. If you find yourself struggling today with a particular focus, a particular desire for change, a particular sin, I encourage you, get to know your merciful and just God better. Open up your word. Find somebody older than you who has more gray hair than you. Say, I really struggle in this area, and it looks to me like you do not struggle in this area. Let me learn from you. We have this church around us that is such a gift. You guys are a gift to Jamie and I and my family. We love coming here. You guys are a gift to each other. God mercifully and in his justice, brought you together as a church so that you would promote him as king and as a kingdom work towards him. All this stands in contrast to the world around us. I mentioned this earlier, but our world hurts for mercy. It hurts for justice. You can see this in every single headline that comes up. There's a pain at the absence of mercy and justice 
around us. People we know hurt for this. We ourselves hurt for this. Yet Jesus, once again, he's the merciful and just king who brings God's redemptive kingdom to us. And we can praise him for that. We praise him for that by living righteously, living as he has prescribed. We respond to this. We live like this by maybe even for the first time today, responding with repentance and faith to who Jesus is. It is, in fact, amazing that God chose to bring his kingdom to this worthless field of a world through his perfect and mighty son, Jesus. And we ought to pray and we ought to praise him and grow in our relationship with him and seek to promote that kingdom in those around us, especially here at church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are, Lord, for the kingdom that you've brought to us. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious, you're merciful and just. And Father, you have not abandoned your plan for mercy and justice. And said, Father, we can trust that you are still in control and you are still working things towards your ultimate glory. Father, we pray that we respond in faith to the message of your gospel, to Jesus, the merciful and just King. And Father, we would live that faith out and we would do so in the humble trust in who you are, Lord, to know you, to depend on you, and to commit to your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.